This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear Rosianna and John. Yeah, today Hank is, I don't actually know what Hank is doing, but he's not available. (laughs) So I'm joined by Rosianna Hals-Rojas, my longtime producing partner and friend. And we are here to answer your questions, provide you with dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. But based on Rosiana and I's interests, mostly AFC Wimbledon. Yeah, it's strong bias towards Wimbledon. I, I feel like Rosiana and I have been to a lot more AFC Wimbledon games than we have been to Mars missions. I've never been to Mars even once. <laughs> nor have I. Um, nor, in and- fact, have any have any humans, and nor will they before 2028, at which point this podcast will be renamed Dear John and Hank. It will be the greatest day of my life. We should definitely have a party. It can be Mars themed. We should. We should <laughs> we should have I I should arrange to have the next NerdCon Nerdfighteria a Mars themed party to celebrate the renaming of the podcast. I actually kind of love that idea. We can get Mars the chocolate people to uh provide lots of stickers. Oh, yes. Kind of genius. That's a great idea and we desperately will need sponsors. So <laughs> Because we all gonna be in, in you know astronaut outfits. It's flawless. It's a flawless situation. I love that you call them astronaut outfits. What do you call them? Spacesuits? I call them spacesuits, but I think astronaut <laughs> outfits is far superior. I don't think British people call them astronaut outfits. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of something wonderful that happened to me recently. We were all trying to decide what movie to watch. And everybody was throwing out ideas as we were like scrolling through the list of available movies. And as we scrolled past Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2, Alice screamed out, that one, that one, Italian man throwing things. 
And I was like, that is a much, much better title for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. Oh my God, I'm so excited for when Alice is old enough to read your books and can just name all of them. <laughs> Even the podcast, like she can name every episode of Dear Hank and John if she wants. Oh, she really, she should name everything. Oh. She's, she's an incredible talent. I told her that like, I feel like she can have any job that she wants, but the most likely job she's going to have is namer of paint colors. Oh, that's brilliant. Because she'd be great at it. Has she had any trial runs with different colors? Well, then she feels like all this pressure. Yeah, you know. Hard. So when I show, she's like, I don't, I don't perform under pressure. I only, I only deliver when you least expect it. Right. She doesn't love a planned audience. She likes an audience under her control. Yes. Which is fair enough. Yeah. She likes to announce when the performance will be occurring rather than <laughs> scheduling it long in advance. I like that. That's kind of going to be my social media approach. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. All right. Unless you have a unless you have a terrible dad joke, I think we can jump right in. You know what? I do. <laughs> oh, okay. What but is it? I, I'm I'm worried you might have heard it. Um, why would Prometheus make a good postman? Why? Because it's a job with a lot of delivering. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great joke. It's a little nerdy. That was uh, actually That's sent a- in to the email by Sydney, um, who says that you Oof. might you might like another uh, Greek related. I very much enjoyed it. It turns out that my wheelhouse is just like ancient Greek dad jokes. Perfect. You heard it, people. Send them in. All right. Let's let's answer some questions from our listeners. This first question comes from Gina, who writes, Dear Hank and John, but mostly John, I have fallen in absolute love with Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) Wait, why mostly John? Just because I am also a little bit in love with Timothy Chalamet? I think that's the assumption. Okay, fair enough. What the heck am I supposed to do? All I can do is stare at beautiful photos of him and pretend like he loves me back. (laughs) I just want to hold his hand for one minute. How do I cope? (laughs) Gina. What I feel like you didn't capture is that this email is written entirely in all caps. (laughs) It is. It is an all caps email. But I appreciate you not shouting at the listeners. Yeah. I mean, I used to write Daniel Radcliffe letters every single week. He was my era's Timothy Chalamet. I would update him about my day. And if anyone asked me whether I had a boyfriend, I'd say it's Daniel. You don't know him. He goes to another school. (laughs) (laughs) Hogwarts. You just... Exactly. It's in Scotland. You won't have heard of it. Yeah, he's in Scotland. You're a muggle. That's like the British version of saying that your girlfriend is Canadian. (laughs) Was that the fake, the fake boyfriend, fake girlfriend? I had, I had a fake girlfriend in Canada. I mean, I probably shouldn't confess this, but when I was in middle school, I had a fake girlfriend in Canada and I didn't even know that it was a trope. Like I did, I didn't realize that I wasn't the first person to come up with this idea. (laughs) And like, I saw one of the first like teen movies I saw featured a joke about a guy who had a fake girlfriend in Canada and I was sweating bullets. (laughs) You're like, they're going to find out. But of course, they already knew. That's so funny. I love it. So I used to think like, oh, we should try to imagine people complexly, even celebrities, even the celebrities we admire or look up to or have crushes on. And now I this is where I'm, I'm at right now. I feel like it's OK to have a huge crush on Timothy Chalamet as long as you understand. And this is really important. You don't actually know him. Yeah. And part of the reason he's so great is that you don't actually know him. Like, I'm sure he's an amazing person in real life. Like every interview I've listened to is an indication that he is a a great guy. But part of what makes our celebrity crushes 
straightforward and uncomplicated is that we don't have to think of them as people yeah. in the same way that we have to think of like the Yahoo who has the locker next to us as a person. <laughs> that Yahoo always being next to us. Yeah. I think that, yeah, that's a really good point. And the singer Mitski spoke when her most recent album came out and spoke a lot about how she's very aware that people are seeing her as a symbol and that there's like some play with that. There's, you know, a level of agency she can still find in that. What makes it scary and what makes it threatening sometimes is when there's like a perceived ownership or entitlement taken from that symbol. Right, which I'm not I'm not getting that vibe from Gina at all. No, no, totally. And so I'm like, there's nothing wrong with that symbolism and that kind of fun and fantasy with it. And like the idea of this gorgeous young actor with floppy hair falling in love with you in an extra trouser collection. There's nothing wrong with that at all. And I think embrace it. I can't tell if you're talking about Timothy Chalamet or if you're still talking about Daniel Radcliffe. Definitely talking about Timothy Chalamet. I don't feel like Daniel Radcliffe had a great trouser collection. That's true. But I might be wrong. That isn't his strength even now, I would argue. Yeah, I haven't really looked at his trousers lately. We sort of, you know, we ended things. <laughs> Do you feel like you've parted ways in terms of having like a proper crush on Daniel Radcliffe? Yeah, I think that happened when I was about 15 because oh. then I discovered Brandon Flowers. Right. And that's just lasted. Yeah. So Gina, I think you're okay. I mean, it's probably not going to happen with with you and Timothy, but the arc of history is long and it's probably not going to happen. And the way you cope is you write fan fiction. If you're not already writing fan fiction, you've got to write some fan fiction. Yeah. But I mean, if I could offer you one piece of advice, Gina, it's make sure that you really anonymize that <laughs> username. <laughs> Yes, because you might think you're always going to remember your login to that website, but I promise you, you won't. <laughs> Hypothetically speaking. It's so going to I've be heard. really hard to figure out how to delete that stuff when you don't remember your login and you don't <laughs> use that email anymore. Just hypothetically. Could happen to somebody. Definitely hasn't happened to anybody we know. Uh, Shall we move on to another question? Uh, Yeah. Okay. Um, So our next question comes from Zev, who says, Dear Brothers Green, I've been looking at the books I bought in the past couple of years, and there's almost no fiction books anymore. Am I getting old? What's happening? Howling like Zev. You are probably getting old. I have a little bit of this problem. I read a lot more nonfiction than I used to. I used to think nonfiction was just a complete waste of time. (laughs) And I read quite a bit of it now. Yeah, I do too. I've gotten really into memoirs, kind of accidentally. Mm -hmm. I just keep buying things that turn out to be memoirs or borrowing things from the library that turn out to be memoirs. And I notice that when I try and come up with uh, Books for Life's library, our book club, they often tend to be memoirs or essay collections. Yeah, I love an essay collection. Like, I love reading Annie Dillard essays or Joan Didion essays or uh, right now I'm reading a book of essays by Vivian Gornick. Oh, I know that name, but I don't know. She's had like a 60-year career as a memoirist and essayist and she just there's no there's nobody who writes sentences like her it's she's just a pure joy to read she's a lifelong new yorker and you can you feel it wow 60 years that's amazing i might be exaggerating 500 years that's incredible (laughs) no yeah she started working in 1969 wow that's a long time that is a long time one that I really loved last year was uh, The Lonely City by Olivia Lang, which is all about New York as well. Mm, and, mm-hmm. oh, there's this book that is really big in the UK that I think only just came out in the, in the US called Everything I Know About Love by Dolly Alderton. 
And that's very much about like being in your 20s in London, Ooh. having grown up kind of on the outskirts of London. It's like, did you write this book for me? Thank you. <laughs> very kind of you. And then um, Trick Mirror, which I read at the very beginning of this year by Gia Tolentino, which I thought was fantastic. It's like the best essay collection about the internet that I've read. It's not just about the internet. It's all about lots of different kinds of self-delusion. Um, but it's fantastic, fantastic writing. So I think part of it is that we're in this great moment of nonfiction right now in general too. Like it's not just that it's kind of happening out of nowhere. There are all these fantastic essayists and memoir writers. and Yeah. Yeah. So instead of answering your questions, uh, we've just recommended a number of nonfiction books to you. <laughs> That's a good point. I also think it's just, I think it's fine to go through phases as a reader. Yeah. Like I try not to, judge myself too much when it comes to my reading. I want to be reading stuff that interests me and challenges me and pushes me in, in new directions and expands my understanding of, of the universe. And sometimes that's fiction and sometimes it's not. I will say that when I'm in a period where I haven't read a fiction book that I loved in a long time, I like to reread something that yeah. I know I love. Like I like to reread Sula or I'll reread Gatsby. And then I'll be like, oh, I like this stuff. And then I'll start to think like, oh, is there a writer who was writing at the same time as Fitzgerald who I've never read? And turns out that I'd never read a Don Powell novel. And so now I'm reading a Don Powell novel. And then from there, I go on to another novel. And so I can, I find that I can kind of break those reading cycles by going back to an old favorite. Yeah, I find that too. There are books on my shelf that are just I reread every year, even though I have lots of exciting new books to read, just because I want to get back into that reading cycle. And also because I just want to read something familiar and comforting. The other thing I was thinking is that when I was younger, I used to like read encyclopedias and stuff and like find out new facts. And now we have Wikipedia and we have all of this information that's like very accessible. And I still, you know, will spend an unimaginable amount of time reading Wikipedia articles. But it's not I feel like nonfiction sometimes can give you that same feeling too of like when you're little thumbing through the encyclopedia learning about the world. Yeah. So that's kind of to the appeal. Yeah, I love falling way down a rabbit hole. Yeah, I got really excited when I saw that you signed up to JSTOR. Oh, yeah. I missed that so much from university, like having access to all these amazing old journals and stuff. Yeah, I'm reading. I, I read a lot of JSTOR. I can't stop myself. We know how to have fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rosiana, we got another question. This one comes from Rachel, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I just found out that my mother is currently in seventh place in the world for highest score in Candy Crush. <laughs> Apparently, she's just been playing whenever she's stressed, which <laughs> must be a lot. How do I simultaneously celebrate this achievement, express concern for her health, and inform her that nobody plays Candy Crush anymore? Uh. First off... My mom still plays Candy Crush, so I, I didn't even know that Candy Crush was over. Seventh place in the world. I'm stuck there. Like, you spread that sentence aloud and I, my brain just stopped there. That's I, unbelievable. Candy Crush has 1.2 million ratings in the Apple store. A lot of people still play it. And your mother is seventh overall. She's basically the ruler of that country, the Candy Crush country. I feel like instead of expressing concern, you should maybe say, mom, I think that you might have a career you don't know about. Yeah. Because like, Become her manager. Take this moment. Yeah. Get her on Twitch. Oh, yeah. Become a like dance mom for your mom. <laughs> 
Yeah. She's your child actor yeah. and you're her mother. I love it. This is an opportunity. <laughs> Brand her. Brand her. This, the seventh best Tetris player in the world, like classic Tetris player, as you know, Rosiana, I am a massive, massive fan of classic 1989 competitive nest tetris i'm aware <laughs> well so is my brother because it has really affected his youtube recommendations <laughs> there's a whole world out there rachel not just of people who play these puzzle games at an extremely high level but of nerds like me who watch other people play these games at an extremely high level <laughs> And honestly, I kind of want to see gameplay of how your mom approaches Candy Crush because she must be very, very good. I've never played Candy Crush. I'm not totally sure what it involves, other than seeing people play it on the tube and thinking, you know, I'm not really sure what you're doing, but it looks great. Yeah, it's Tetris-esque in the sense that you're trying to line things up and make them disappear. Okay. But I'm not. Okay, so there's like a there's a speed element to it as well. I'll, I'll confess that I'm not totally sure. Well, that's why Rachel's mom needs to start her Twitch. Yeah, I look forward to becoming a Twitch supporter of Rachel's mom's new Candy Crush channel. Definitely tell her you'll throw her a party if she gets to first place. Yeah. Like, give her more pressure. Right. <laughs> Pile it on. Yeah. Just say, Mom, you're only playing when you're stressed? Well, we need to increase your stress levels because you're only seventh and you could be great, Mom. You could be really great. <laughs> Do you want to be a contender? Are you serious about this? Do you wake up in the morning hungry for Candy Crush stardom, Mom? And if not, how do we get there? Because I'm going to take us there. Great. That's I think we've cracked it. Proper, properly good advice. I think we've answered that <laughs> yeah. question. All right. The next question comes from David. Dear Hank and John, four years ago, I received a free turkey for Thanksgiving from my workplace. Because I was a poor college student, I went to my parents' house for the meal and didn't touch it, thinking I'll just make that in a few weeks when I need a lunch. I am now 27 and the turkey is still in my freezer. <laughs> what do I do with this beast? <laughs> and also the subject line of that email was cold turkey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, David, this is not a difficult question to answer, so that's good. It, 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 it's time to part with the turkey, and I don't mean part with it by cooking it. If it's been in the freezer for four years, it's, it's not going to be great. It's going to be fine, right? No. I didn't I, eat meat, so I don't really know. <laughs> so, David, because you obviously don't have access to a internet search engine, I, I went ahead and did, did just a real basic level of research on this for you. <laughs> and the answer is that at least according to the Butterball Turkey talk line, oh my God, which is a real thing, you can call Butterball. Featured in the West Wing. Yep. And <laughs> Rosiana only knows about it because it's been in an episode of the West Wing. Mm -hmm. You can call Butterball and get your turkey advice. As long as it's kept in the freezer unopened and the freezer has been freezing in an uninterrupted fashion for two to three years. Oh, no. So you have just exited the butterball turkey window. Now, look, a real turkey suffered and died for this moment, David. I don't want to make you feel too bad, but that turkey had a soul and a family. <laughs> so what I would recommend is that you cook the turkey, and then you feed it to coyotes. They'll eat anything. <laughs> or raccoons. Raccoons will eat anything, too. You could have a funeral for the turkey. That's good. Imagine how you would want to be woken up after being cryogenically frozen. And then write a list of all the things you'd want to do. 
before realizing that actually cryogenically freezing someone doesn't really work. As indeed it did not work for this turkey. Yeah. And you give that gift to the turkey. You give them the exit that they so deserve. That's a great idea. All right, we got another question, Rosiana. This one comes from Audrey, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I'm getting married at the end of this month, and I think my fiancé still thinks my grandma starred in the 1965 classic The Sound of Music. <laughs> How do I see if he still believes this without sounding suspicious? Wishing I was holidaying in Rome, Audrey. I love the lack of context. The lack of context makes me delighted. <laughs> yeah, so are we to assume that Audrey once said as a trick... My grandma starred. First off, there's only one starring role in The Sound of Music. So are we to believe that Audrey told her fiancé, my grandma is Julie Andrews? Or did she tell her fiancé, my grandma is Christopher Plummer? (laughs) Which is, yeah, an even bigger twist. Yeah. So there's that possibility. Alternately, Audrey said early on in dating funny you should mention that because my grandma was in The Sound of Music and it was a trick, but like the trick like never quite got delivered on. This is something Sarah and I did early in our relationship that we actually had to stop doing because it became so serious where we would try to trick each other about facts that weren't true, (laughs) both about our our own personal lives, but also about like broader geopolitical stuff, you know, like while you were getting to know each other. Yeah, it was while we were dating. But even early in our marriage, we were still doing it where we would like one of us would try to convince the other. They were all all so stupid that like (laughs) the world's leading port for cruise ships is actually in Morocco. <laughs> and, and then the other person would be like, that doesn't, ma- that doesn't make any sense. What? Really? And you'd be like, yeah. And then it, you'd have to wait like 10 minutes and then you would say trick. Oh, so while you, when you've already moved on to something new. Yes, it was only once the person believed you that you would announce trick. I love that. That's great. That's so the weird. The reason we had to stop doing it, it was, yeah, it was, it was a really fun, it was a great game. And Audrey obviously is, is, has enjoyed it as much as, as much as we did. The reason we had to stop doing it is because we stopped trusting each other about facts. <laughs> so you had to stop because it was causing like a breakdown in the marriage. Yeah, it was <laughs> like basic communication was impossible. It was a communication <laughs> issue. What had started out as like, a fun trick had become like a breakdown in communications. I love it. The thing that I find uh, intriguing about this also is that on the uh, on the old dating apps, they now have a lot of like things to try and convey personality. Oh. So that it's not just like pictures that you're judging on, which just adds a whole lot of complicated layers. Wait, like what else is there? So basically you have all of these questions that you're given a list to choose from and you can pick three and you put them on your profile. And one app started doing this, Hinge, and then now all of the other apps are doing it as well because they all just copy each other. But one of the, one of the like, trademark ones is two truths and a lie so i'm wondering if maybe this was a two truths and a lie situation where clearly that was never resolved or maybe the fiance was unsuccessful at guessing but audrey still wanted to date them anyway (laughs) wait i gotta i gotta i gotta roll back a little bit here okay so you're telling me yeah that now when you're online dating in addition to like having to like carefully choose your pictures, 
you have to carefully choose two truths and a lie about you with the hopes that it will like get someone's attention enough that they'll guess which one is the lie. And then now you're in conversation and then you fall in love. Yeah, but you also have to do it in a way that makes it seem like you haven't spent much time setting up your profile and you're like casual about it, but also really funny. Super right. Yeah. Just naturally incredibly funny. So it's not a lot of work for you to be charming because you are inherently so charismatic. Yeah, but then you also don't want to set the bar too high for your banter in case you can't live up to it in person. It's a real joy. Oh, that is fascinating to me. Yeah. I mean, that first off, I, that sounds super difficult and challenging. But Well, you know, of all the struggles in the world, that could be worse. Yeah, I mean, I, I of course, that's always true. But like, it's still... It's, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> it, I... I've never found that particularly convincing when people are like, ah, you know, my problems could be much worse. And I'm like, yeah, but but yeah, but you don't have those problems. You have these problems, which are also serious. I just the thing about it is that I, I, I feel like and speaking of trick, I feel like I've been tricked by these dating apps to care when really we all know that it's just like a massive data generation experiment so that they have behavioral data about how we like to date. Like, it's not actually to help me meet someone. Ooh, that is dark. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I really, I miss the golden age of online dating in a big way. It's so, it, the thing is, like, being good at dating is not the same thing as being good at being in a long-term relationship. That's why I try and tell all my dates. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a, it's a weird way. And of course, like, not not all dating is oriented around finding a long-term relationship. But like, it is a weird way to try to do that. Yeah. Like, it seems like a really inefficient system for doing that. Not that I know a more efficient system. And obviously, like all the other systems that we've we've tried throughout the millennia have have been troubling in their own ways. I don't, I don't want to like imply otherwise. But yeah, it's just, it just seems very hard. And Andre, I think if you did a two truths and a lie thing, you should just maybe go with it? Yeah, I think commit to it. I think pick someone. Who is it? Is it Julie Andrews? Is it Greta? Gretel? Gretel? I can't remember the name maybe of the it's... children. I, I don't either. Pick one of them. Yeah, just just do Julie Andrews and just be like, yeah, she can't come to the wedding. It's the weirdest thing. <laughs> she has another engagement. She's Or maybe sorry. she can come to the wedding and Julie Andrews is down. You know, like maybe Julie Andrews is ready to be your grandma and like and she'll she'll do this for you. Like maybe you should email her and say like, hey, this is weird, but can you do me a solid? I bet she'd do it. She's a very nice person. It's good to start a marriage off on a really deep lie. I like it. I feel like that's the strongest foundation. Um, The next question comes from Hannah, who says, Dear Hank and John, do you journal? I have been a huge fan of journaling for years, but I never seem to make it more than a couple weeks before forgetting to write. I thought of using a Google Doc to journal, since typing is so much easier, but I love the idea of having a handwritten account of my life. How do I increase the amount of journaling I do? Is using a Google Doc journal cheating? Is my life even interesting enough to write down? Hannah, banana, fee, fifo, fana, Hannah. Wait. Do y'all have that? Do you know that song? I feel like I know it from maybe the Babysitter's Club, but I just realized it did make me say banana, <laughs> which is not how I say banana. <laughs> oh, yeah. It tricked you into being an American. <laughs> I was tricked. Although I don't know that you say banana. Do you? 
I say banana. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you do. Oh, wow. That's so weird. If I can flatten out a vowel, I will. Banana. Banana. Anyway. <laughs> I love hearing British people with American accents. It's so, um, I don't know how to say this politely. It's so offensive. <laughs> like, it hurts my feelings so much that that is what you think I sound like. <laughs> I just, when I was just on this Disney World trip with my friends, I, one of my friends is from uh, Augusta, Georgia. And when she really loves something, she'll, she just gets so Southern. She's lived in LA for a long time, but she gets so Southern when she loves something. She, and what she says is, I love it. <laughs> I just, yeah. I just, yeah. I love it so much. It makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah. She, I mean, again, though, hearing you <laughs> say that that's how we sound. It's tough. It's tough to it's tough to hear it out loud. Oh yeah, because Americans never do English accents. <laughs> no, I no. I mean, uh, my brother has the best English accent in the family, and his is so bad. <laughs> Even after all that practice. <laughs> yeah, you would think that he'd be good after having faked an English accent for an entire year. Hey, do you journal? <laughs> I do journal. Yeah, I journal most days. I always say that the best way to increase the amount of journaling you do is to make it part of your routine, as with any kind of writing. Like, find a time of day that is, like, your most creative output kind of time and make that your your journal time. For me, it's basically the mornings or there are certain days of the week where, like, I'll routinely have, like, half an hour in a coffee shop or something. And I use that time. But yeah, I journal. I've journaled for like 21 years now. Wow. Which is alarming. There's a great book that Rosiana gave me called Ongoingness about the end of a diary, right? Yeah. yeah I love that book. And it's such a beautiful book. It didn't make me want to journal, though. <laughs> I don't journal. I mean, this is bad. And I, I this is something I don't like about myself. But I almost never write except for an audience. Mm. Like, I... I I don't know how to write for myself. Like, I don't even really know what that would mean. Uh, for me, like, writing is a way of trying to hash out or trying to, like, think through something or understand something. But I want to do that with a reader in mind. Right. It feels like a two-way street. That's just always how I've conceived of it. However, in the last couple months, I have started gratitude journaling with uh, Kurtz Gazat's gratitude journal. And it is amazing. It's game changing for me. It has really reshaped like pathways in my brain just in a few months. So I do it at the end of the day. Mm. And what I found, I did it for like a month and then I moved the gratitude journal away from my bedside table onto a different table. Yeah. And I immediately stopped. Oh, that's so interesting. Because it wasn't like physically in my way at the end of the day. Yeah. And so I moved it back and then I started again because now it was physically there and I was like, oh, I should do this because at first it does feel like a chore a little bit. And I, I feel like a lot of people feel that way about journaling, like, oh, it's just another thing. Right. But as with exercise, as with uh, lots of other things, once you get in the habit of it, you feel the rewards of it. You just don't feel the rewards of it necessarily immediately, which is what makes it hard to do. So yeah, I've I've found it to be really helpful. As far as whether or not a Google Doc is cheating, no, it's not cheating. If anything, it's better because then it's backed up to the cloud and plus Google knows how you're feeling. <laughs> Google always knows how you're feeling, but now they have evidence. Right. Yeah, to be fair, you're <laughs> you're writing a journal every day through your Google searches. It's just only Google keeps it. <laughs> I think that the, the, 
that's a really good um, point, though, about not knowing what to write and also actually about having it nearby. I take the tube like two or three times every day here, the metro system here in the UK. And I found that if I don't have my book physically in my hand, like if I don't walk to the tube station holding my book, I will just go on my phone. So now I like have my book out and I put my phone at the bottom of my backpack. Mm. And so the two things I'm holding in my hand are my book and my Oyster card. So it's like about having those things around that you want to increase the habits. I think also in the question of like handwriting as well, like that, I think that's probably part of what helps it feel personal for me because I do handwrite my journals. Mm -hmm. And also because like, I learn a lot about myself from looking back at my handwriting. Like if I'm really stressed out, it will be very small. Mm. Or if I'm kind of in a hurry, it will be diagonal. Mm. So that becomes a tell. And I wonder if part of that feeling of writing for other people comes from writing on a laptop. Maybe. Because I used to have like a live journal and stuff too. And that always was writing for other people. Right. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't write by hand. But even I, when I did, like I did in college, and even then, it's almost like I can't hash anything out that, that's meaningful for me unless I'm imagining somebody on the other side of it. I don't think that's a bad thing, though. Mm. I think it's just a different way of, of doing it. I also think that like it, it's tricky, isn't it? There's just like lots of different levels of it because something I really admire about you is how quickly you share things. Like you share your work when it's like, I'm horrible at sharing my writing, but you're very good at sharing it and getting that feedback back. So it's just lots of different ways to do things. Ben writes, Hi there, Hank and John. My therapist asked me the other day, when was the last time you spent more than 15 minutes away from a screen? And I didn't have an answer. Oh God. Oh boy. I've been running into the anxiety of what do I do when I'm not looking at my phone or a computer or a TV. So before we go on with the question, Ben, I just want to say that for me, for it, my experience, my experience is obviously not universal. This is just my experience. It was one of those things where the phone was the solution mm. to, to my problem of wanting to be distracted, of wanting something to do, but it was also the cause of the anxiety that was making me need something to do. Yeah. That was my experience. Can relate. <laughs> the phone caused the problem that it solved. So often technology is in the business of solving a problem that it actually also caused. So Ben goes on to write, I've been running in the anxiety of what do I do when I'm not looking at a phone or a computer or a TV. The obvious solution seems to be put those things away. But then what? I could read and that's all I've got. Oh, man. I feel like a lot of this is kind of similar to the journaling thing. A lot of this has to be you helping yourself by suggesting activities to yourself in terms of leaving them out and around you and easy to do. Like I recently have started leaving out watercolors or leaving out paper because I I need those like cues to go and do something because mm -hmm. the, the default has become my phone like my, my hand reaches for it before I even know I'm reaching for it me too I, I I mean this is still an ongoing problem in my life and when I'm reading I will start to feel an itch after 10 or 15 minutes like an itch in my brain that says like you haven't checked your email yeah and that is something that our brains have been trained to do and so, yes, you can read, but there's also a lot of other things that you can do. And by the way, Ben, I hope you do read. Specifically, I hope you read my books <laughs> and uh, my brother's book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing. And all it's the books book. available from Life's Library that come every six weeks. Yeah. Go to lifeslibrarybookclub.com and check out the opportunities to read books there as well. 
<laughs> but there are also other things that you can do that are not about distraction or engaging with other people's voices. Like, for instance, you can go on a walk or going outside can be really revelatory. Yeah. So that's my advice. Go on a walk. Go on a walk every day. It's so funny. When I was younger, I used to really resent my parents taking me for walks. And now they're such a key part of my day. And sometimes I've literally forgotten my phone. And that's such a relief yeah. as well. Like there's an anxiety initially, but then it becomes relief. Yep. And I think a lot of breaking that habit of like checking and just like that check, 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 check your phone is pushing yourself just a little longer between checking every time. Yeah. I, so I, I don't want to sound like a, like a complete technophobe, but I also think a lot of these tools are really new. And we don't know how to use them effectively yet. And we also don't have good strategies for regulating their use, either personally or in a more community sense. And that's something that we have to be conscious of. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep it's a huge time saver thrive market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods they got amy's banza burt's bees Trobani, honest kids kind mike's hot honey oatly olipop poppy salt I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one -one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Also, just making plans with friends. That's There's no replacement for that. Yeah. All right. Before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I think it's vitally important to ask this question from Kimberly, who writes, Dear John and Hank, over the summer, I planted a variety of seeds in a vegetable planter, including beans. This being my first vegetable planter, you can imagine my excitement when my beans began to grow. And boy, did they grow. So I spent the last six months cultivating my bean plant and eagerly awaiting the spring and my harvest of beans. However, I recently discovered that my beans were not beans. They were weeds. <laughs> Oh, no. I was walking around at my school's campus and I noticed some clovers that looked suspiciously like my beans. And then I discovered that, in fact, they were my beans. I finally ended up looking up what a bean bush looks like, only to discover that what was growing in my planter was clover. How do I deal with the disappointment of putting time and effort and hopes and dreams into weeds? Oh, it's crushing. <laughs> it's so crushing. And the thing is like... This is like the grandest metaphor for something. I just haven't quite worked out what it is yet. <laughs> yeah. So here's some 
may be good news, and and you you should be careful here, and bear in mind that this is not a botany podcast. <laughs> a lot of clover is edible. Like I, clover itself is edible. I don't know if the plant that you are growing is actual clover. I have had boiled clover before, and it's not it's not great, but it's not bad. But it's not beans. It's it, it's not as good as like a really good baked bean. But no. you can eat clover. <laughs> so that's that's a good optimistic first step. I think it's possible that what you th- you're correct that it's not beans, but you're also wrong that it's clover. And I think it might I think it might be peas. <laughs> it gets- I think you might have a pea plant. And you're go- and so like th- you're going to go all the way around the circle. Things are better than expected. <laughs> exactly. It turns out that you have something that's even better than beans. Also, the other thing that I'm thinking as I read this is like, why are we so down on weeds? Yeah. Like weeds are often beautiful and they're beautiful to trick you into keeping them there and not ripping them up so that they can survive. Yeah. They're fine. <laughs> Well, especially weeds like clover that aren't a problem. I didn't actually know that clover is a weed. It's not a weed in in England, which is I think gets nicely at the problem, right? Uh, like, <laughs> sorry. With a lot of with a lot of plants, the idea of weed is a construct. Oh. Like when it comes to American lawns, it's all supposed to be this one kind of grass, which just makes no sense on any level. And if clover grows in your lawn, who cares? Yeah. We're all going to be dead. Yeah, that's how I always felt when uh, people would get angry at me for blowing on dandelion heads. No, 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 like, no, no. Having them go no. into the air. No. Liberating the dandelions. No. Contributing to the circle of life. No. That... We're all going to die. No, except no, Except the dandelion. No, that, that is totally different. <laughs> That is is completely different from having... I might have 15,000 dandelions in my garden. (laughs) Would you like more? No. (laughs) The thing that my garden is best at growing by far is dandelions. And I know I'm going to get a ton of people writing in saying that dandelions are edible and that I should make dandelion wine and blah, blah. No. I don't. I don't want to. I, the dandelion I, I, lobby is notorious. Oh, people love. My kids love to blow on dandelion seeds, and then I get a lot of dandelions. It's such effective design. They're like, here's this interactive weed. Yeah. <laughs> please. Well, it, please help. I don't think it did know about humans, but it is really well suited to the Anthropocene. I bet a couple of gorillas have have done their part. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Rosiana. Do you have any news from the cold, dead rock that is Mars? Because if not, I actually do have a bit of Mars news. I have some Mars news. I can't tell you that I completely understand this Mars news. Great. But I'm going to, Give it to tell me. you it anyway. Okay. I never understand what Hank says. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here, as I understand it, is the news. Traditionally, at, you know, recent scientific tradition, people have believed that Mars the planet grew rapidly in two to four million years after the solar system started to form. But there's a study now published in Science Advances, 
that hot, hot journal. And the study was led by Dr. Simone Marchi of the Southwest Research Institute in Texas. And it has suggested that Mars actually formed more gradually than expected and that it accumulated mass over a period of 20 million years, mm. which is a quite a few more than two to four million, by pulling particles into its gravitational field. Mm. And apparently... This is important because knowing more about how and when Mars was formed will help unlock other mysteries, including the planet's temperature and how the atmosphere changed it, changed during its evolution. So this is a big deal for science, if true. Big news, if true. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. I also recently saw that there may sometimes be some salt water on the surface of Mars it would be extremely, extremely salty. Mm. Pools, short-lived pools of brine is the Lovely. phrase th that I saw, which, by the way, short-lived pools of brine would be a pretty good name for an album. <laughs> <laughs> I also... I also think, like, from a geological perspective, it might be how Earth thinks of us. Uh, I was also thinking it'd be good for a gravestone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this particular short-lived pool of brine was born on such and such. <laughs> oh, it's so dark. <laughs> I mean, the more I think about myself, the more I think, like, I am ultimately just a short-lived pool of... Okay, we're going. It's We've, we've gone too deep. <laughs> we've gone to the place. It's, it's time to go to AFC Wimbledon. Yeah. So, Rosiana, as you know, Wimbledon fans have started a bond, the Plow Lane bond, to help pay for the stadium costs so they don't have to borrow all of the money from a bank. They can borrow the money essentially from themselves and then get a small return on that investment over time. The Plow Lane bond has now raised over four million pounds. Oh, which wow. Is incredible. Uh, it's it, and so it's like it it takes I think us halfway there to what we still need to raise to pay for the full finish of the stadium. Would you say that we're living on a prayer? Yes, I would say that we are halfway there. Whoa, whoa, we're living on a prayer. <laughs> and uh, I watched Wimbledon's midweek game against Ipswich Town. Beautiful. It was a nil-nil draw, and let me tell you. That's a great result on every <laughs> level. I mean, the, our our new goalkeeper, Joe Day, had th the day of his life. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it was incredible. So I, I'll take a nil-nil draw in that situation. We only had 36% of the possession. Oh, wow. Uh, but it's a point. We looked pretty good. We looked, we looked like a team that's too good to go down, which is my hope. And the other thing is that that may well be the last night game that AFC Wimbledon plays at Kings Meadow. Why is that? Because the hope is Wimbledon will be at Plow Lane next season. Oh, wow. So there aren't any more night games on their schedule. That's right. That's exciting. So maybe the last time we play under the floodlights at Kings Meadow. Who knows? Uh, there's still a long way to go with the stadium. It does get dark pretty early here. <laughs> and it does get dark at 3 p.m. So who knows? They might have to turn on the floodlights for a 3 p.m. game. Well, I'm very glad that we got that nil-nil draw and I continued to be anxious until the end of the season. Yeah, I mean, one point closer to safety, but God, there's still a long way to go. Yeah. 
Well, Rosiana, thank you for potting with me. It's always a pleasure. If you enjoyed Rosiana and me podcasting together, you'll love the Life's Library podcast, which comes free with a Life's Library subscription at lifeslibrarybookclub.com. All the proceeds from that go to charity, and we love making Life's Library. It's such a joy to be able to read in community with so many of you. Thank you to all of you who are members. And if you're interested, you can check it out at lifeslibrarybookclub.com. It's so much fun. It's like one of my favorite projects that I think we've ever worked on together. So, and that's saying a lot. Yeah, I know. We've been really lucky to be able to work on cool stuff, but uh, this this is one of my favorites. So. Please check it out at lifeslibrarybookclub.com. Thank you again uh, for listening. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. The music that you're listening to right now and at the beginning of the pod is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.